The following is a podcast from St. George's Episcopal Church in Arlington, Virginia. We invite you to support the ministries of St. George's Church through a one-time or reoccurring donation. To give, visit our webpage, www.stgeorgeschurch.org. The word saint is spelled in full. St. George's is a vibrant and inclusive community that is committed to loving God, serving others, and changing the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one to come, or are we to wait for another? Matthew, from whom we've just heard, and the other authors of New Testament Gospels are very interested in the question of how the preaching of John 
relates to the preaching of Jesus. They share a basic narrative. John comes first. John baptizes Jesus. John is arrested. And then the ministry of Jesus begins to gather momentum. But they push further, and each gospel author has his own way of exploring the question. Luke suggests a tradition that perhaps John and Jesus are related by family ties. He's the only one who reports that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, are related to one another. John the Evangelist suggests an early tie created by John the Baptist's disciples. In his recounting, Andrew and other disciples of John the Baptist leave John and begin to follow Jesus immediately after our Lord's baptism in the Jordan River. Mark suggests a passage of Scripture right at the very beginning in the first chapter of his Gospel that explains the relationship. He says it's from Isaiah. I send you to prepare the way, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Though, in fact, it's a pastiche of two prophets. The first half is from Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and the highway part is from Isaiah chapter 40 with reflections in chapter 36, which we have heard today as our first lesson. For Matthew, however, it is this inquiry sent by John that ties the two figures together more clearly. John, in prison, hears about Jesus and sends out his messengers, his disciples, to ask, are you the one to come, or should we wait for another? As Matthew understands it, it's here that Jesus expounds on the text that Mark has offered as a narrator in the first chapter of his gospel. Though Matthew is a little more persnickety with his biblical quotations, you'll notice that he says, I am quoting a prophet. He doesn't mention the prophet's name because, in fact, he's not quoting Isaiah but Malachi, and he leaves out the Isaiah part. So Jesus looks as a little better interpreter here than Mark has been. He quotes a prophet. He quotes Malachi about the need to prepare. I think one of the results of that is that as in Matthew, Jesus expounds the message of John, explains the role of John, there is more focus on preparation which is of the heart and of the faith of individuals. And he moves a little further away from Isaiah's concern, which is actually for a physical highway that will get people back from Babylon where they've been in captivity and bring them safely to Jerusalem. Prepare the way, and for John, the way, as Matthew understands it, is a preparation of the heart. When I was in 
Theological Seminary in the early 70s in New Haven, there was a rather well-known preacher who was the chaplain at that point to Yale University. His name was William Sloan Coffin, and he had a reputation for filling up the chancel, for speaking to the times, and he brought many people to come. I wasn't very long in seminary when somebody said to me, in effect, if you want to be a preacher, you need to go hear this boy. He has something to say. And so I turned out, skipping the search for a field education site on a Sunday early in my first year, and went out and heard Sloan Coffin preach. I didn't come because of a deep movement of my heart. I, I didn't come because of a desire to repent. I went because I was curious about a celebrity preacher. Jesus recognized that that is one of the attraction of John the Baptist. Why did you go out to see this guy in the wilderness, he asked the crowd. Did you go because you wanted to see soft robes? An insider joke, because John wears camel hair as his raiment. Did you go out to see a preacher in funny vestments? Did you go out because you wanted to see a reed shaking in the wilderness? Now that could be a comment on the setting of John's preaching, but probably it's an allusion to his physique. An aesthetic preacher who lives in the wilderness, who spends all his time preaching, and who only eats what locust and wild honey that he can find, is probably a fairly thin individual. There's not a whole lot to him. And yet this thin man in the wilderness speaks with power. He's like a reed, but shaking in the wilderness as he preaches. Maybe Jesus suggests to those who come, that is why you have come out to him. But he doesn't berate people for that. However they have come, whatever reason they come, they hear a message. And so his third question is, did you come out to see a prophet? Indeed you did. And more than a prophet. He is greater than anyone born of woman. And you went out to hear him. The prophet's message is a message of repentance. And so those who come out to John, whatever the reason they come, hear a preaching to repent, examine your lives, look at the way you've behaved, come before the Lord and repent. And we know from earlier passages he can be very specific about certain people and why they ought to repent. The liturgy we celebrate today, indeed, most Sunday liturgies of the Episcopal Church have what you might call a John the Baptist moment in them, the recitation of the general confession. We take it for granted because it's always there, but it is an interesting innovation that comes from the 15th century, 16th century, when Protestants were unhappy with private confession. 
And so they took older patterns and created something new. They looked to the public confession of the early church when individuals with particularly grievous sins confessed their sins in item before the entire congregation as an act of repentance. And they drew on the medieval custom that all of those in the altar party would confess to one another before they entered the church. We end up with what is in some ways the most public and most private of sins, a public recitation together of a common prayer, but with the understanding that we are confessing not to the community, not to the altar party, not to a confessor, but to God. And in case we forget that in the Eucharist, we have an opening prayer often used, identifying our God as the one to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and no secret is hidden. We have a moment in which we can confess in our hearts before our God, who already knows full well our reason for confession, and ask God's forgiveness as we then move to the celebration of the table and our prayers for others. Now, Jesus, as Matthew understand it, and John see an immediate result to such a repentance and preparation in the hearts of the people as the Old Testament lesson, the Old Testament lesson would have it in Isaiah 40, a voice, whoops, then shall the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongues of the speechless sing by joy, sing for joy. And that is what, in effect, paraphrase, Jesus tells back to the followers of John. Tell him what you have seen. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. Now, Matthew knows, as indeed he will suggest at other points in his gospel, that this does not happen to everyone. Indeed, it's abundantly clear in this passage that Jesus sends that message to John, who's lying in prison and will soon be executed. Not all receive good news. Not all are set free. Not all are released from illness. Not all hear good news, but it is preached. I think the point that Jesus in Matthew is making is this. If you repent, you can for a moment open a window in the egotism of all people in which we worry mostly about ourselves and see the powerful work that God is already doing among God's people. And see it as a sign of God's love and approach of the end time. There are, in Jesus' ministry, those who are raised up, those who are given sight, 
those who are able to hear for the first time, those who hear the good news and embrace it. And when we put our hearts before the Lord, and when we confess our sins with John, we are open to see that message as God's good message to all God's people, which is already beginning to be revealed in the lives of individual people. It is, if you will, that we are to look at the world around us and see previews of coming attractions. Or a more personal example in my own family, at some point, my sister and brother and I convinced our parents that they ought to let us open one Christmas present early. <laughs> and sometime around 4 o'clock on Christmas Eve, we had nagged our parents enough that we were able to open a present and to see what is to come. We are captured by Jesus and John in that moment between 4 o'clock and Christmas morning, in that period of time in which we see already God's good gifts to us and the approach, the approach of richer gifts which are to come. And we can join Jesus and his disciples in rejoicing. And Jesus said to the disciples of John, Tell him what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Amen.